0: Going to talk about a recent decision of the federal court of appeal called la rose v canada i'm going to start by quickly reviewing the facts in um, the decision itself and then i'm going to introduce our guest and we can discuss some of the implications of this case in la rose 15 children and youth from all across canada between the ages of 10 and 19 are claiming that canada's failure to adequately address the climate change crisis violates their section 7 charter right to life liberty and security of the person and to not be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice by, quoting from the appellant's statement of claim, interfering with their physical and psychological integrity and their ability to make fundamental life choices. They are also arguing that it violates their Section 15 Charter Right to Equality because today's youth will disproportionately bear the consequences of climate change in the future. Canada responded with a motion to strike those claims, Acknowledging the reality and consequences of climate change, but arguing that the claims are not justiciable, meaning that they can't be ruled on by a court. And a claim will be struck on a motion to strike if the court determines that it's plain and obvious that the claim has no reasonable prospect of success. The federal court struck the youth's claims and the case was appealed to the federal court of appeal and in December the federal court of appeal released its decision stating that the claims were justiciable and striking both the section 7 and 15 claims but allowing the section 7 claim to proceed to trial once the pleadings are amended. Okay our guest today is Professor Chris Tollefson who is a professor here at UVic Law and also has a law firm called Tollefson Law uh, which is co-counsel along with Arve Finley for the youth. Uh, Welcome Professor Tollefson.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, So let's start with justiciability. As explained by Justice uh, Rennie of the Federal Court of Appeal, a claim is non-justiciable if it's unsuitable for judicial determination because the court lacks the institutional capacity, which means what the court can do, and the legitimacy, meaning what the court should do, to determine the issue. The federal court struck your claims without leave to amend because your section 7 and 15 claims were not justiciable because they were too political to be determined by a court and because um, they essentially challenge a constellation of actions that make up Canada's climate change strategy rather than a single law, which is more normally what is required in charter litigation. Um, Basically, you are arguing that the government has infringed these charter rights through a course of conduct rather than through any specific action or inaction. Um, And the Federal Court of Appeal held that being political is not enough to make the matter non-justiciable, and that in this case, the government's policy decisions have been written into law. Um, But they were still concerned that challenging such a broad constellation of actions and laws, um, quoting, effectively puts the entirety of Canada's response to climate change up for scrutiny, which is why they decided that the Section 7 claim should be struck, but with leave to amend to basically frame the pleadings as targeting specific laws, so, why is it important that challenges to a constellation of government action and inaction not be struck as non justiciable?
1: Um, to answer that question, Andy, I think we really first have to recognize why this decision is important in terms of justiciability doctrine more generally. You know, prior to this decision, the case law was frankly a bit of a mess, and this, of course, is a big problem in climate cases because governments rely on this justiciability defense Mm -hmm. all the time um and so there was a lot of conflict and inconsistency in the case law and i think what this what this case does is to bring some real clarity to the test and as you've described it turns on uh, it turns on legitimacy and capacity those two questions Um, I think before this decision it was unclear uh, whether, um, uh, you know, a case uh, could be non-justiciable simply because it was too broadly pleaded or it was too political or polycentric, um, or even perhaps because it's too complex. What this decision, I think, clarifies is that a case, especially where the charter is in play, a, chase, a case doesn't become non-justiciable for any of those reasons as long as it's securely tethered to the case law. Mm-hmm. So back to this case, why, why is that important? Uh, the Chamber's judge relied on the justiciability doctrine to strike the claim on the footing that it was too broad, it was too political. And what the Court of Appeal, I think, correctly says is that um, neither of those defects are fatal, that the case is securely tethered to the Charter, it should be allowed to proceed to trial, albeit with some uh, revisions to the uh, statement of claim. And we can talk about that a little bit later.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, it seems like it would basically immunize state conduct that could impact people's charter rights as long as it's spread across like multiple instruments and policy decisions in that case.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And I I think that was the argument we put to the chamber's judge. uh, And uh, I think that's, why that concern was why ultimately the Federal Court of Appeal has allowed us to amend the claim, Mm -hmm. but ordered that it proceed to trial.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I look forward to seeing uh, the results of that. Um, So I'm just moving on now to section seven. Section seven of the charter states that everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and the right not to be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. And throughout Canadian jurisprudence, there's been a debate about whether Section 7 contains only negative rights or whether it guarantees both positive and negative rights. This is actually one of my favorite areas of law, legal (laughs) questions. Uh, Because so far, Section 7 has been interpreted as protecting negative rights, uh, meaning that the government can't create laws that deprive citizens of their life, liberty, or security of the person. Um, But the Supreme Court, most kind of famously, and I believe recently in Gosselin, has also left the door open for section seven guaranteeing positive rights, meaning that it protects citizens' freestanding right to life, liberty, and security of the person, as well as preventing laws from depriving them of those things. So what that would do is positive section seven rights would impose obligations on the government to take positive actions to protect citizens' life, liberty, and security of the person, even when uh, the citizens are not being deprived of those things directly by a government law. Um, So Canada argued that the Section 7 claim was a positive rights claim because it required the government to take positive action to protect them from the effects of climate change, even if those effects are not being caused directly by any specific Canadian law. Um, The Federal Court of Appeal noted that it can be really difficult to distinguish positive and negative Section 7 claims um, and stated it's a little bit unclear from the decision, but stated that the claim has elements of both. Um, and in goslin Justice McLaughlin dis- declined to find a positive Section 7 claim was made out on those mm-hmm. particular facts, but that was due to a lack of evidence. And she left the door open explicitly for the court finding that Section 7 protects positive rights in a future case um, in special circumstances. Uh, so what are the special circumstances in this case that warrant a novel finding that the government's lack of sufficient action violates these used Section 7 rights?
1: Well, 20 20 years ago, the court did leave that door open.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, In 20 years, no one has managed to get through the door, Mm -hmm. although I think there's a growing recognition, as uh, Justice Rennie indicates, that the line between positive and negative is very blurry. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, what's interesting, I think, in this decision, among other things, is that a unanimous Court of Appeal has said that if there ever were to be special circumstances that this case uh, would uh, be a good candidate, a very strong candidate for meeting that test. And they don't express why, mm-hmm. but let me let me speculate a little bit. I think there's lots of reasons why. Firstly, the existential nature of, of, of the crisis, indeed the emergency that we're facing, that is widely recognized in the scientific and the political domain, um, in the legal community even in, in various uh, Supreme Court of Canada decisions. So we all, I think, um, are mindful of the existential nature, nature of the crisis, but I think we're also mindful that there is an irreversibility to decisions, actions and actions that we may take now can have potentially irreversible consequences. We are locked into, at this point, a trajectory that needs very quickly to be changed to avert catastrophic consequences, especially for those who are in your generation, who are um, in their 20s and 30s and and younger. Um, So the third thing, I think, therefore, is that um, why it could be a case that could be said to be special uh, in this regard, is that we have a broad agreement you know, across the political, legal, and scientific communities that this is an issue that we need to grapple with. And I guess the question is, how and what's the role of the courts? And then mm-hmm. finally, special circumstances, I think, strongly arise from consideration of the situation these young plaintiffs find themselves in. Uh, they will bear the consequences of actions and inactions that we take now they don't get to vote. They don't get to run for office. Hopefully they will soon. Yeah. Um, but this case, I think, uh, also qualifies as a special one for those reasons.
0: Mm-hmm. And it also kind of avoids the pitfall in Gosland of um, not being able to present evidence or they just hadn't at that stage because we have so much scientific proof that's relatively agreed on uh, in the scientific community. It's provable. Ab-
1: absolutely. And I think we'll come to – I know there's um, – uh, a chance later to talk about features of this case that may not be well understood but I think that's one of them. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the things about this case is that it is not tethered to a politically brokered standard. It's not pe- It's not tethered to Paris. It's actually a case that is very focused on what the science is telling us now.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so a little bit more on the kind of I suppose, argument against positive Section 7 rights or some of the concerns is that courts have historically been very wary of positive Section 7 rights. um, And some of those concerns around them relate to the institutional role of the judiciary and the division of powers. Uh, There's concerns about what it would mean for parliamentary supremacy if the judiciary can obligate government action, especially if that comes to spending money. Um, Because the courts are not elected, they don't have the legitimacy that the legislature gets through being chosen by the people. And so the courts telling the government not only what they can't do, but also what they must do could be seen as contrary to the principle of democracy. Uh, There's also concerns that the judiciary does not have the expertise or the context that they would need to make decisions about government policy because the government makes decisions about what actions to take or not take within the larger context Mm -hmm. of debate and public consultation, understanding the larger picture of how the government is balancing its resources in the face of competing spending priorities. Um, And how difficult this is, is exactly why this is my favorite area of law, because it is really (laughs) tricky. Um, So in your opinion, are these legitimate concerns? And if so, how should they be addressed if a court were to recognize positive section seven rights?
1: Well, they are legitimate concerns, but I would wanna underscore that they're not concerns that just arise in the debate around positive and negative rights. Mm -hmm. I think they're pervasive throughout public law, through administrative law, constitutional law, charter law we have to um, have a theory, have an approach that makes sense in terms of protecting the separation of powers, respecting the roles of each branch of of government. Um, and, I, and I think we also have to recognize as the court in, in this case recognizes that um, uh, we're already imposing positive duties on government, at least in the criminal justice setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so section seven, is ostensibly uh, to many people's minds about negative rights but we're already imposing positive duties in that setting and we can talk about that um the court gives some good examples of that
0: jordan being one
1: absolutely yeah yeah so i think uh we clearly in canada have a strong tradition of deference judicial deference to the kinds of decisions that are in play in this case um, but in cases like um, Dunsmuir and Vavilov, uh, I think the courts are expressing the notion that 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 deference cannot be blind. It's not blind obedience; mm-hmm. it has to be respect based upon some theory of the roles of these different of these different branches of government. And uh, it's also, I think, a respect that has to be mindful of the context. So where charter rights are implicated. I think different considerations apply, Mm -hmm. um, as here of course. So um, my view, when you're squarely in the domain of the charter and where your theory is carefully tethered, or securely tethered at least, to uh, existing law, um, I think the courts have a very significant role to play. They should be very uh, reluctant to decline that role Um, That doesn't mean that uh, deference or respect is out the window. Mm -hmm. I think it's important in every case to be mindful of that from start to finish. And I think it's in the remedial setting. We talk about remedy that that can be especially important. And I think in our case, we have been mindful of that. And the remedy that we're arguing for is one that does respect the separation of powers, that does call upon the court to give leadership, to identify a standard, but to leave to the executive branch and people who are expert in that area to identify how to implement and to implement that standard.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you want to get into that remedy a little bit or explain it for the audience?
1: For sure. So um, in our case, of course, this was filed in 2019 before there was a law. Uh, that provided an umbrella for federal the federal government response such as it is to climate change uh, we now have um, a net zero legislation in place which will become part of this lawsuit going forward so our, but our that meant that our lawsuit was not uh, archetypal in the sense we weren't seeking to strike down a law as, as we've talked about it was a mm-hmm. challenge to a constellation of action and inaction over time going back several several decades um, and that uh, uh, in our view makes a lot of sense rather than simply targeting uh, you know it f- to strike down a, a particular law uh, here, we wanted to shine a spotlight on why we got to where we are and what we need to do going forward. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we we've basically, in this lawsuit, um, the remedy that is being sought uh, is, uh, on the one hand, declaratory, spotlighting, uh, the court finding that according to a standard that we have established, we can say there has been a charter breach here. And then secondly, because of the uh, record here, the government's failure over time successively to (laughs) carry out the promises that it makes to deal with this situation, we have invited the court to consider an innovative remedy, which is to uh, order that a science-based climate recovery strategy be implemented, setting targets, based on the science that emerges from the trial and then allowing for government uh, to uh, do its job to to deal with it to do its share of tackling tackling the problem while while the court remains seized remains uh able to oversee this Mm -hmm. um so that's basically the that's the approach that we've taken the latter remedy is innovative the former remedy is not and uh, even if we're just seeking the former remedy, that would be, in our view, uh, adequate for this case to go ahead.
0: Yeah, and I know that the uh, the at the federal court level, the judge um, expressed some concern about the court overseeing government action mm-hmm. going forward, just keeping them seized at the case. Um, but as you say, it's not like it is the court's role to oversee government action. Just usually that's in the context of a case being brought before them rather than yeah. carrying on after. And it is
1: very interesting. Yeah, Absolutely the chambers judge on the first day of that hearing before we'd even really made any submissions indicated his concern about the remedy Mm -hmm. and part of the reason he found it non-justiciable was because of the remedy but what the federal Court of Appeal says in December is very interesting they say that courts should be reluctant to prejudge the remedy, that it shouldn't be a reason to decide that a case is non-justiciable. Let's deal with the remedy when the evidence is in. Mm -hmm. If we have led a case that uh, lands uh, the court in a place where it is comfortable granting that remedy, so be it. But give us that chance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And especially because charter remedies are, like, the text of the charter is deliberately very vague on what they would be. Like, there's a reason that 24-2 is so specific and then the other two are left very open and probably for exactly this situation where you can't necessarily foresee in 1982 like every remedy that will ever be needed.
1: Yes, that's a very good point.
0: Okay, my next question is uh, what issues if any this case highlights with regards to access to justice for youth and their ability to influence decisions that affect them?
1: Well, one of the great Privileges of my career is actually to be able to work on this case for these 15 young people who are quite an uh, incredible and impressive group. I mean, they're uh, obviously very dogged and resilient. It's been four years. Mm -hmm. Um, They're very committed. Um, But they're also uh, very strategic about this question of, you know, leveraging change. And uh, I recently did an interview with one of them who said that before this litigation started, she was a climate activist. While it's going on, she's a climate activist, and when it's done, she's still going to be a climate activist. That mm-hmm. this is the litigation is part of their life work to work around these issues, um, and I and I think that um, uh, that um, that focus and insight is really important. It's remarkable. Uh, that they have such insight and focus Um, and I think it really imposes on us as their lawyers uh, a a real burden but also a confidence that they know what this is about where this is going and I I guess one of the things that has occurred to me recently is that watching them do media watching them talk about this uh, with us uh, instills in me great confidence about the future Mm-hmm. It won't be that long before they are able to vote, and some of them probably will end up running for office before too long. So I think there is a generational change happening. They're going to be part of it, and other young people who are involved in these kinds of cases around these issues will be part of that change.
0: Mm-hmm. They should come to law school as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and some of them are. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, at least two or three of them that are in law school now. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah.
0: So I think we discussed this a little bit earlier, but are there aspects of this case that you think are very important but often overlooked, like be it by the media, students, the courts?
1: It's difficult in in the media or even in a courtroom, uh, sometimes on a summary motion application, um, to take the kind of dive that's needed to get the true insight that's necessary. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we're very clear about the plaintiff's and their legal team are very clear about, is that uh, we feel there has been a deficit of, of real scientific discussion and understanding about these issues. Mm-hmm. We're kind of stuck in 2015 still around Paris, but it, you know the Paris Agreement was modeled on data and scientific understandings f- from several years before that. Mm-hmm. So we're about a decade behind in terms of our public discourse the gravity of of the emergency and what needs to be done what the what the science is telling us that desperately needs a venue to be brought forward we're hoping that this case can be that venue
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that would be uh that would be really interesting especially when it takes so long like it's taken now five years just for a court to say that you can bring the case so when you're dealing with situations where it takes you know a decade to get through all the courts in Canada like they're always going to be working on a leg
1: absolutely and um that's you know that's the quandary isn't it Mm -hmm. um we didn't think it was going to take four years to get where we are Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but we're we're on the same path that we thought we'd be on so that's a good thing I guess
0: absolutely Um, And that leads well into my last question, which is, uh, what are your next steps in this case now?
1: Well, it's interesting, the last uh, 10 pages or so of the Federal Court of Appeals decision addresses this question, what are the next steps? Mm -hmm. Um, They hold that uh, while the claim is broad, that doesn't make it non-justiciable. At the same time, they do recognize that this has to go to trial. There has to be parameters. Uh, I think they also recognize that the evidence that we're proposing to lead now is, you know, that much further down the road. So we're going to have to revisit, uh, with their directions, uh, our pleadings. We're going to have to file a newly amended statement of claim. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have discussions uh, clearly with the Crown about that. Uh, it will now have to address uh, the implications of the net zero legislation and other things that have happened. Um, We're confident uh, that we can bring this to trial. Our plaintiffs are ready. Our science uh, is ready to go. Um, But it will require some negotiations with the Crown and discussions about how to move it forward in an efficient way.
0: Yeah, I suppose it's a bit new for everybody involved. So collaborative approach seems like it would be wise.
1: And we're confident that we can um, stay on that course. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, thank you very much, Professor. Um, And thank you all for listening.